let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll jump right into Titus 1. God, we gather this morning, and we are hungry for your word today. God, I pray that you would change us this morning through your word, by your spirit. Lord, we don't want to just hear a lecture this morning. We want to encounter the living God. Lord, we want to look more and more like Jesus even after we listen to the sermon. So, Lord, would you do the mysterious work of taking your word through your spirit and conforming us to the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we uh, launched our new study, uh, walking through this short epistle called uh, Titus. Uh, two weeks ago, I just kind of laid a foundation for uh, this letter and uh, reminded us that this, uh, t- this letter only has three chapters in it. It only has 46 verses, and yet uh, what Paul does is he lays out an argument that in order to be a growing Christian, you must be intimately and deeply committed uh, to the local church. What Paul does here in in Titus is that he marries both doctrine and deeds. He marries belief and behavior. He marries conduct and creed, but not done so through the lens of individualism, where you grow uh, based on you, your Bible, and your relationship with Jesus. But he presents those things through the lens of communal Christianity, what it looks like to be part of the church family. And so we just laid this foundation looking at the background, the authorship, as well as one of the four main takeaways uh, that we're going to see throughout Titus. If you remember that one uh, takeaway that I unpacked uh, for the majority of our time two weeks ago is that Titus will challenge us to have a participatory engagement and deeper commitment to the local church. I just laid out an argument that it's really impossible to apply all that is in Titus without belonging to the church. And so I gave four reasons uh, for church membership, this idea of a formal and expressed commitment to uh, the church. In other words, if you truly understand the gospel, if you truly understand that Jesus died for the church, then you won't view the church as optional. You won't view the church as just icing on the cake in the Christian life, or I'll go to church if I, may, if I have time for it, but you'll be deeply involved in it. That's why we've titled uh, this series, God's Design for uh, the Church. Again, we touched on the fact that the Apostle Paul is the author, verse 1. The recipient is a man named Titus. We also looked at some interesting characteristics of Crete. This is the place where Titus is now uh, pastoring. So this morning, what I want to do is walk through really verses 1, 2, and 3, and I'm going to highlight these three purposes for Paul's ministry and really the reason why Paul is writing to Titus, because baked in these three purposes, we actually see the other three main takeaways from Titus. So we're going to walk through each of these verses. I'm going to point out the purpose, and then underneath that, we're going to see a major theme that uh, is throughout this letter. All right, so walking through uh, verse 1 together, uh, we see the first purpose that Paul lays out here is he's writing, and really his ministry here is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So look with me here at verse 1. Paul, uh, of course, states that he's an apostle, he's a servant of God. And then here's the first purpose or the first reason for his ministry in writing Titus. It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. 
Now, God's elect, this phrase here is a very common uh, phrase used by Paul all throughout his letters. You're going to see that phrase. It's a phrase that's used to describe believers as the people of God. Let me give you one example of where we see this throughout Paul's writings. Romans 8, verse 33, Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect or God's people? It is God who justifies. So this is an important phrase. It not only describes who the people of God are, but it also describes something about God. This is kind of dipping our toes into the doctrine of election, which is not the point of the sermon, but the doctrine of election refers to the fact that God chooses, God elects to do everything that he does based on what he sees best. And that includes salvation, that God chooses, God elects, some to believe, some to be saved according to his sovereign grace, according to his eternal plan. So before the foundations of the world, God elects, God chooses some to be saved. We see this really throughout scripture, but Jesus even declared in John 15 verse 16 to his disciples, literally says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. All right, so Paul uses this phrase just to describe God's people. And here it's the local church. It is uh, the people of God. But also notice this phrase, God's elect is in connection to something. It's the faith of God's elect. Now throughout the Bible, uh, we see two main uh, uses for the word faith. The most common use is faith is uh, being talked about in response to God's grace, in response to the gospel. So you trust in, you believe, you put your faith in Jesus. But then there's another use of faith. When it's talked about the faith, it's that which is in accordance with the set beliefs of Orthodox Christianity, or what some would describe as sound doctrine. And that's the use that Paul is using here. Paul is saying, the purpose of my ministry, the reason why I'm writing Titus is for the sake of ensuring that the sound doctrine of God's elect, God's people, the church, is protected, is preserved, and is taught. Now, this leads us to another main takeaway that we're going to see all throughout Titus, and it's this. So we already saw the first one a couple weeks ago. Notice number two here. It's a big theme. Titus is going to convince us that sound doctrine is non-negotiable. Sound doctrine is biblical teaching on theological truths. It's grounding our beliefs in what the Bible says. And we see sound doctrine, this theme, all throughout Titus. Let me give you a couple of examples. Chapter one, verse nine, in the qualifications of an elder, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Chapter two, verse one, it's used as a command. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is also the reason to rebuke those who have wandered away from the faith. Chapter one, verse 13, it says, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Okay, so sound doctrine is what should be taught It's what should be declared, and it's what should be preached in the local church. Paul even mentions his own preaching in chapter 1, verse 3, as the mechanism 
by which God's word, sound doctrine, is manifested. All right, and this is a big theme all throughout Titus. Now, why? Why does Paul emphasize sound doctrine throughout uh, Titus? It's because the pulpit drives the church. That what is declared as God's word is opened up before God's people shapes the values and the priorities of that local body. And the reason why that's so significant is because as we study Titus over the next couple of months, the question that will be raised is what should the church be known for? Or, or what, what is the most important aspect of the church? And Paul's going to answer that question. And I think we need to be reminded of what the correct answer actually is, because I know for me as a pastor, I hear all kinds of different answers to that question. I hear, well, the most important thing should be children's ministry, right? The children's ministry should be fun. We want our kids to have fun in children's ministry. And, and I hear that. I'm like, well, they can have fun at the children's museum. So, so how does that separate itself from the church? Or I'll hear, you know, the most important thing about church is that it should be a place of acceptance. I want, I want to have my friends, my friendships are there. And I hear that. I'm like, well, you can get that at the local bar. Other, other things that I hear is the, ch- the, the music should be amazing. I, I want to be moved by the music. And I'm like, well, you can get that at Ruoff when a, when a band comes to play. I hear other things like, well, I want to feel good when I'm at church. I want to have a good feeling. I want to be filled with peace. Man, I feel that way every time I go to my favorite restaurant. You should ask me how I feel after I go to Taco Bell. I feel great, right, Maury? I know, yeah, that's right. Now, of course, children's ministry should have an element of fun to it, right? We want to bore our kids with the truth. Churches should have an element of fellowship. There should be vibrant relationship there, absolutely. We want our music to be pleasant and uplifting. And I do want you to feel good at church, not about yourself, but about God, our Savior, right? So what should be the most important thing about church? The most important thing should be sound doctrine. It should be the place where God's word is clearly and without compromise being presented to God's people. And I want to make sure that we're on the same page about that because we have had several people, new people come over the last couple of months. You might be new here this morning. I want you to, to, to understand, and I want to be abundantly, abundantly clear, that our church is anchored in God's word, that God's word is authoritative, it is central, and it is sufficient. So in fact, one of our core values speaks into this, being driven by God's word, not driven by the entertainment business, not driven by the bells and whistles on Sunday morning. We are driven by God's word in sound doctrine. Why is that important? That's important because your beliefs determine your behavior. What you believe to be true drives how you live. Or you could say it this way, orthodoxy, which is right thinking, leads to orthopraxy, which is right living, right action. And so my aim when I open up God's word is not to make you comfortable. It's not to make you feel good about yourself. My aim is to open up the word of God each week and let the word do the work. 
stirring and convicting and conforming you to the person of Jesus Christ. And as sound doctrine is being proclaimed all throughout the church, we are able to grow as the people of God. We're going to be challenged with this all throughout Titus. That's a big takeaway. All right, let's move back. Back to the, another purpose uh, that, that Paul is, is writing Titus, another purpose for his ministry is for the sake of the knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. You see this at the end of verse one. And that phrase there at the end of verse one, which accords with godliness is really important. That describes the aim of truth, of knowledge of the word of God. That for Paul and his ministry and why he's writing Titus, he doesn't just want God's elect or God's people to have an intellectual grasp of the truth, but he wants them to be transformed by the truth. In other words, possessing a knowledge of the truth is not intended just to make you smart. So you can drop the best insight at small group or Bible study and people can say, oh man, that person has so much knowledge. They're so smart about the Bible. Possessing a knowledge of the truth is not an end in and of itself. It should lead to something. And specifically here, it should lead toward godliness, toward maturity in Christ, toward spiritual growth in Jesus of looking more and more like him. And so the, the challenge here and what Paul is referring to here is when you are studying God's word, when you're hearing the word of God being taught, it should change you. As you're encountering God in his word, you should be changed and transformed in more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so if you're reading the Bible and you're gaining knowledge, but you're not being changed by it, then you have to stop and evaluate that. You have to stop and ask the question, why? And I would suggest that maybe the reason is that there is a, a disconnect happening. There, there's a, what I would call a plug. There's some sort of blockage from the electricity of God's power in his word from coming into your heart and life and changing you and transforming you. Because as you read the Bible, you're, you're interacting with the living God. And as you're interacting with the living God, he will change you. And so you have to ask the question, what's the blockage in my heart? What's the plug? Could it be pride? Could it be thinking, well, I'm reading this. I already know this. I already know this passage. And so there's a level of pride that's blocking it. Could it be a lack of faith, doubting that God can actually change you and transform you? Could it be self-sufficiency, self-reliance, lacking a desperation and a dependency upon God as you read his word? Could it be a, a me-centered approach? You read the Bible just for me and, and what I need rather than having this white hot worship for the creator as you read God's word. There are all kinds of reasons for that blockage. But the, I think the correct posture to have as you open up God's word, as you study it, the correct posture is this hungry expectation of desperately wanting God to reveal himself to you. Like you want God, God, show me who you are. Let me feast upon you and your glory so that I'm changed as a result of that. Like that's gotta be in your heart. That's gotta be on your prayer, on the tip of your tongue as you're interacting, as you're spending time with God. So that when you study it, there's this regular piercing feeling, this conviction 
of God's word is looking into your heart and exposing those gaps, exposing those areas where you fall short so you can confess that sin, repent of sin, and by God's grace, be a doer of the word of God. That's gotta be a regular occurrence for you as you approach the word of God. So the aim here is this transformational truth resulting in godliness. Now this leads to another main takeaway that we're gonna see throughout Titus, a huge theme that we're going to be confronted with. Titus is going to show us this powerful link between gospel adoration and gospel adornment. In other words, the gospel is not just something to be in awe about, but the gospel is something that should dictate how it is that you are living. Let me read for us a key verse in Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Paul says, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, this verse, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks, this verse is after a large section in Titus 2 where Paul is outlining for God's people in the church various good works, how to live out discipleship. And he gets to the end of that. And he's like, we're doing all of this, all the good works is done so we might adorn the doctrine of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, adornment means to make something beautiful or attractive, to make something more appealing. When you're having people over at your house, when, you're, when the in-laws are coming over, you're going to be adorning the house. You're going to make it look more attractive and, and appealing. You're going to straighten things up, tidy things up, clean things up. You're going to buy mums from Costco, not because you need them, but because you want to adorn your house. So when they come over, they can look at that and say, oh, wow, the house looks so beautiful. It's so well-kept. It's so appealing, right? That's adorning. Paul is saying we can do that with the doctrine of God, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not changing its message, not adding to the message of Jesus Christ, but through our good works, through our lifestyle, we can actually make it more appealing, more attractive, and more beautiful. I think that's such an important point for us to just keep in mind as we're living out our faith in, in, in kind of the real world, you know, Monday through Saturday, is that the world around us is watching us. Like if your coworkers know that you're a Christian, which I hope they do, they watch you. Your neighbors, who I hope they know that you're a follower of Jesus, they're, they're watching you. Like your friends, your barista, people at school, like they're watching you. And the question that Titus, that Paul will confront us with in Titus is, are you adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ in how you live? Are you making it more compelling? Right, let's ask that question a little bit differently. Let's get a little more specific. In what specific ways are you adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ to such a degree that the people in your life say to you, I want what you have? What you have in Jesus is so desirable, I want that. Tell me more about this Jesus that you, that you claim to believe in. That they're watching the way that you love people, the good works that you have in your life, the way that you use your tongue in a gracious way, not in a complaining way, as they watch your satisfaction and joy in Jesus, 
and, and they see your life. They see the way that you're adorning the gospel and they say, man, I want that in my life. And I, I, I suspect we might need some help connecting the dots of adoring the gospel and then adorning the gospel in our lives. Titus will help us connect our Sunday mornings with our Monday mornings. Looking forward to that. All right, lastly here, here's the, the last purpose for Paul's ministry, why he's writing Titus. This is now verse two. It's for the sake of the hope of eternal life. He says in verse two, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. All right, this is really important. Paul's ministry is for the sake of God's elect in their hope of eternal life. Hope here does not mean wishful thinking, like I hope that the Colts win today. But hope for the Christian means a confident assurance of what we know will happen. All right, now let's kind of anchor our time in that right now. For the Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, eternal life is not something that we are somewhat unsure about. It's not through optimistic and wishful thinking, something that we hope will happen. It may or may not happen, but we hope it does. No, for the Christian, we are confident of eternal life because the promise of eternity is grounded and anchored in an unchanging God who never lies. Paul says here that God has promised before time began to provide eternal life for his people. He's like, God never lies. Think about that. That is so, so very powerful. If you trace all of God's promises throughout the ages, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, if you trace all of the promises in God's word, not once did he break a promise with his people. God has a perfect track record. He is forever faithful. His promises are sure. What he says he will do. So our eternity is not hanging in the balance. It's not up in the air thinking, oh man, I hope this happens. No, it is a sure thing. So follower of Jesus, you can rest in that. Your eternal position of being with your creator, being with your savior, Jesus Christ forever and ever is being kept and guarded by an almighty, powerful, trustworthy God. And what's amazing about this, I know we're spending a couple of weeks on just these first four verses this is just one reference of many to this idea of salvation, this idea of eternal life. There are several others, which takes us to the fourth main takeaway of Titus. The last one here I want to point out is that Titus will help invigorate our hearts with the gospel. This letter powerfully and beautifully exalts Jesus in the gospel. All throughout Titus, Paul holds up the saving power of God to rescue sinners. Of course, you're gonna see this in verse two of the hope of eternal life. Paul's description of Jesus Christ is one of savior in chapter one, verse four. We have chapter two, verse 11, of the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation for all people. We have chapter two, verse 14, Jesus Christ giving himself up for us to redeem us and purify us. And then one of the most robust and beautiful descriptions of the gospel is in chapter three, verses three through seven. Man, I don't know about you, but I need this. Like, I think we all need this. 
Like we all go through seasons where we tend to lose our awe when it comes to the gospel. We still believe it, but we're not maybe moved by the gospel as we should. And I wonder if you're in that season right now. Are you here today and you need your, your love for Jesus and the gospel rekindled? I wonder, has it grown dry? Are you not moved by it in the way that you should? Have your affections been hijacked by other things in the world today? Look, if that's you, I've got such great news for you. Titus here, as we walk through it in the next couple of months, Titus doesn't offer a description of the gospel that's just factual, that's just informational. Paul provides a description of what Jesus has done in such a beautiful and powerful way that it moves us. And there's a big difference there. Like, let me, let me illustrate it this way. I, this week, I had um, lunch with a new friend. And my new friend, he, he doesn't know my wife, Lindsay, at all. He's never seen me and Lindsay interact in our marriage. It's a new friendship. And so he was asking me, what do you guys like together? What's your marriage like? And I was thinking about that question. I was like, you know, there are kind of two different ways of answering that question. One is to kind of just give the facts. I've been married to Lindsay for 12 years. We met freshman year at Cedarville University College. We have three kids and we live in Fishers, Indiana, right? Like all true, all good facts, maybe helpful for him as he's sitting across the table for me trying to get an idea of our marriage. Or I could answer it this way. I've been married to Lindsay for 12 years and they've been the best 12 years of my life. That she's my best friend. She's my best supporter. That being with her, she makes me want to be a better man. Just being with her, I wanna, I wanna follow Jesus better because of her influence in my life. That outside of Jesus, no one has changed me more and I, I cannot imagine life without her. You see the difference? Huge difference between just stating the facts and then painting a picture of the gift and really the beauty of being married to Lindsay. This is exactly what Paul does with the gospel. And this is so beautiful. Paul, throughout Titus, does not just state the facts of the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, died for sinners, so you go to heaven. That's good. That's helpful. But no, no, no. He paints a picture of what Jesus has accomplished in a way that's meant to move us. That he writes and describes the finished work of Jesus in a way to, to wake us up, to arrest our hearts with this truth that God loves you. In fact, let me just read. It's like becoming one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Let me just read Titus 3, 3, for, 3 through 7, just for a moment here. And if you just need to close your eyes for a moment and just take this in, because church, this is beautiful what Paul does here. Listen to this. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? Like the way this is written, Paul doesn't just want us to loosely acknowledge the facts that at one time we were sinners. No, he says, you were foolish. You were disobedient. You were led astray, slaves to sinful passions. Like, man, the, the wording here is Paul's writing this and he's basically saying, you were so lost, you didn't even know that you were lost. You were in need of rescuing to the point where you didn't even know it. You didn't even want to be rescued, which sets up beautifully verse five, the powerful work of God out of God's goodness and kindness. He sends Jesus to save and rescue us, which is so important. This is so beautiful because we were so steeped into our own sin. We actually needed someone beyond ourselves to do the rescuing. Like we couldn't rescue ourselves. He says, this isn't done by your good works. It's done by his mercy. Church, this is so powerful. But he doesn't stop there though. He goes on to describe this rescue mission of God as a washing, as a renewing work of the Holy Spirit. That should conjure up this image that because of our sin, we were dirty. You get, this, you get this image that the washing work of God, you get this image of being so muddied by our own shame, uh, covered in the filthiness of our, of our guilt. And man, that type of uncleanness before a holy God, there's a, there's a heaviness to that, of being that dirtied up by our rebellion. And then Paul says, but look at what God did. God washed you. He renewed you in the work of the Holy Spirit, that God has this powerful cleansing, this washing ability to make you clean. And church, so often we, we just rush on by that truth. And so I want to just pause there and just say it again from here. If you're in Christ today, God has made you clean. He has washed you clean. Man, just let that truth sink into your heart. I am clean before a holy God. Is there anything more powerful than that? You could say it this way, there's no sin too dirty that God's grace cannot wash away. And I don't know who needs to hear that today, but there's no heart that's filled with anger and resentment and bitterness that God can't make clean. There's no life where the tongue is being used in a deceptive or in a gossip way or speaking lies that God cannot make clean. There's no life that's filled with lust and sexual immorality that God cannot make clean. There, there's no life that's, 
that's dipped into alcohol abuse, drug abuse, or deception, or adultery. I mean, fill in the blank. There's no match for God's powerful and cleansing grace and mercy who can take any sinner, no matter how steeped into sin, and God can pour out his grace. God can wash you and cleanse you. So you're no longer covered in the filthiness of guilt, but you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. That God can make you and anybody clean. And it's because, verse 4, it's because of his goodness. It's because of his kindness. And we read 46 verses in Titus, you get to the end of it, and you think to yourself, God did this for me? The, the Holy One died to make me clean. He did this for me. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, that when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever rebel against one who loved me so and sought my good. So Titus is going to help us. He's going to help us write in such a way that makes Jesus so beautiful that it changes and it conforms us to who Christ actually is. As I close, I just want to point out one other thing. You know, the, these first four verses, they're so packed full of truth. We've just scratched the surface today. Outside of Romans, it's one of the longest introductions in all of Paul's letters. But I want to point out one last thing as we close. I want you just to notice how God-centered and God-saturated this introduction is. Let me just point this out. To us. God is the one who's identified as the one Paul serves, verse 1. God is the one who elects believers, verse 1. God is the one who promised before time began, verse 2. God is the one who never lies, verse 2. God is the one who has revealed the gospel through Paul's preaching, verse 3. God is described as Savior in verse 4. That's so significant. That's so powerful to start a letter that way, Paul could have done it differently. He could have said, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to do. He could have said, I'm, an, I'm a servant of God. Put these things in order and do, do, do. Perform, perform, perform. It doesn't start that way. He says, let me give you a vision of God that will saturate your heart and your life. And he does that so that you and I will be filled with his glory and not our own. And that is the key to life change. That the gospel message at the end of the day is not do, do, do. It's not perform, perform, perform. The gospel message at the end of the day is Jesus declaring from the cross, it is finished. And you rest in that and you receive his finished work and out of that overflow, you're faithful and obedient to God. Oh, there's so much to look forward to in this letter. I'm looking forward to diving into it with you. Let's pray and close together. Lord, we are so, so thankful for the powerful work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
God, when we think about the dirtiness of our sin, that all of us were just filthy with our own rebellion. God, you are the one who initiated the saving work. You are the one who picked us out from the pit of darkness and you washed us clean. You regenerated our heart. You justified us before yourself. You gave us faith to believe. God, I pray that as our hearts think about the finished work of Jesus, that we would be stunned time and time again. So Lord, we thank you for King Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen.